0: Well, good morning to all of you. Welcome back to our study of Mark's Gospel. We're going to be picking up in chapter 9. We're going to need to very briefly revisit the section verses 33 through 37. Because this will have some bearing, minimal bearing, but some bearing on our Lord's words that will be under consideration for the first part of this class. Before we get into it, let's have an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. In many respects in Mark's Gospel, we've been doing a great reversal theme, even seeing that theme bear itself out in the Jews versus the Gentiles, and in the Gentiles, though they're the least, having the greatest faith and showing and demonstrating that faith over and against the Jews, And then here, it just comes right out in chapter 9, verses 33 through 37, this great reversal where, of course, on the way to Capernaum, the disciples get into an argument. Jesus hears it, asks them what they were discussing. They're sheepish, of course, because they were talking about who was going to be the greatest. And then Jesus says, if anyone would be first, let him be last and servant of all. So the greatest will be the least. That theme, the least will be the greatest. So then he places in front of them a little child, one of the least. And he elevates this child and even associates his own person with this child, his own presence with this child. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me but him who sent me. So we meditated on that. And then, of course, John interjects with this business about, yeah, yeah well, don't get us in too much trouble because there's this other guy casting out demons. You know, typical move. Let's, let's get upset about him instead of upset about us. And then you've got Jesus sort of r- picked this theme back up in what follows 42. So again Jesus says in the context of John's statement, do not stop him, for no one does a mighty work in my name who will soon be after uh, soon afterward be able to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. Truly I say to you whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. And then he says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me. So, you know, this is the this is kind of the challenge of this section. You have a literal child introduced in 36. And then you've got the little ones. with The preceding context being maybe even this man who's casting out demons in the name of Jesus but doesn't walk along with the disciples isn't part of their formal circle. So those are some of the considerations that go into the reading of Micron, little ones. Uh, Little ones physically, sure, like little children. Uh, Little ones of the faith, sure, that too, I think. I think it's both and, to tell you the truth. I think it's encompassing. That's That's my own personal read on what's going on here. Again, the you can tell that the paragraph break there is somewhat artificial. Of course, it's not in the original, but nothing is in the original. But there's no marker by the apostle indicating that there's some sort of transition or break in thought, nor even in Jesus' own language. So they seem, these things seem to all flow together. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin? This is one of the places... One of the few places, to be honest with you, we, I, I'm so surprised it's not, it's not more frequent, where it really does benefit to know the Greek language, or really, I d- really do wish that they chose a different translation for a word, because it can, lead, it can lead you astray. I mean, the good news is it's one of very, very few places, but this is one, because it's not just the hamartia word for sin, and that's often how we read this. So if you cause a little person to sin, you know, sorry, I didn't mean like a little person, literally, but like... <laughs> <laughs> but like a child, you know, if you lead a child to sin, um, then all of a sudden this millstone's going to be hung around your neck. It's not precisely that. I mean, obviously leading a little child into sin is a disastrous and terrible thing, so I mean to take nothing away from that. But is that what Jesus is saying here? Like, it's really bad if you sin against a kid. That's not really what he's saying. Um, sin here is the skandalitze word, which would be better translated as apostatize. That's, because that's really what's in view, to lose their faith. And that's going to be, become even more evident that that's the thought paradigm Jesus has as we progress along and we see him talking about the lopping off of hands and feet and the plucking out of eyes, etc. What's at stake here is eternal salvation. So whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to fall away would be a, maybe even a more consistent translation with the ESV itself. It would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. So I know that this verse is like commonly thought of as like pedophilia and sins against children and that kind of thing. And it's like, not really. I mean, sure, like that's denounced and maybe it's denounced way down the line in this verse, but that's just not the thought that Jesus has foremost in his mind quite evidently. It's, causing someone who believes in him to fall away, to be scandalized, to no longer follow him. Um, It would be better for that person who caused this, who did this, if he had a millstone hung around his neck and were thrown into the sea. Um, It's a wild picture, as it's a vivid picture, I, I mean, that Jesus uses here. A millstone, you know, you're not even going to be able to carry, let alone tie it around someone's neck and throw it into the sea. So it's, yeah, vivid, almost exaggerated, uh, hyperbolic, just like it'd be virtually impossible to do this to someone. Um, And it would be obviously violent and disastrous. And that kind of is in keeping with his whole manner of speech in this section. He continues on, 43, and if your hand causes you to sin, again, sin isn't just, you know, how would your hand cause you to sin? When it just instantaneously does one of those gestures at someone who cuts you off on the freeway. (laughs) right Uh, yeah there's lots of different ways our hands can sin Um, but is that really what's being said here no not not strictly speak I mean do we want our hands to sin of course not is any sin damnable of course so you know it's not to take anything away from that but the point is rather if your hand causes you to fall away to apostatize cut it off and then the draconian language is better understood if some part of your body, no matter how important it is, is going to cause you to lose Christ, look what he then says. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell or Gehenna, to the unquenchable fire. So clearly we're talking about falling away from Christ, which necessarily leads one into hell. So, Jesus' mode and method of preaching is often hyperbole, which is exaggerated statement. And it's a masterful way of preaching. It's a delightful way of preaching. If you're going to be overly literalistic, you might not like some of Jesus' preaching. You might find it difficult to understand. Or you might wonder why he exaggerates things or makes things seem so bombastic or whatever. I kind of like it. I kind of like it. I try to emulate it from time to time. Um, And I think that this is... Because otherwise, you know, if this was to be taken sort of literalistically, then you'd have a a whole bunch of maimed Christians running around. Would you not? Yeah, please.
1: Is this, would you say that this is also kind of like the body of Christ? So like, if you have like different members of the body of Christ, and like one is causing you to sin, like almost in terms of like, uh, uh, Yeah, when you bring a person and they're sinning and then they don't refuse not to or refuse mm-hmm. to stay in their sin wait, wait. In their sin.
0: yeah yeah
1: mm-hmm. um excommunication i guess so is mm-hmm. that would this be a passage that would just that or is that taking it out of context or putting it out of context
0: It's an intriguing possibility and so, uh, Dr. David Scare, a professor uh, of some long-standing and reputation at the Fort Wayne Seminary, he's an expert in the Gospel of Matthew, and he does speculate that that's what's happening. Matthew tends to give more in terms of the detail, in terms of the setting, in terms of the discourses and their interaction, or their interaction that might make that more plausible. In Mark, it's a harder case to make that that's what's going on. But of course, if you reflect on that in Matthew and say, well, that's what it means, then maybe it easily means that and the parallels. So it is an intriguing possibility that corporately, um, you're talking about the body of Christ, and that if there is one, uh, so if if in this case there were... uh, hand or a foot or an eye, a member of the body of Christ, that's going to cause the whole body to apostatize and go to hell, it would be better to excommunicate that member, to cut that member off. So whether or not, and here I think we can make a a, a distinction, leave aside for a moment, if that's good exegesis, and just say, does that follow the rule or analogy of faith? Is that in keeping with the rest of what the scriptures say? And I think the answer would be, yeah, generally so. So there's no harm in entertaining that interpretation, reading, understanding. Okay? So that's kind of like that first, first way of consideration. Now the second way of consideration is more tightly exegetical. Yes, but be that as it may, is that what Jesus is really getting at here? That's a tougher argument to make. Um, I don't know. I'm willing to entertain it. How's that? All right. All right. The uh, yeah, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. the The corporate imagery is there. Oh, I don't even have it open to the right. That's frustrating. Was there another? Yeah, please go ahead while I'm checking something out.
1: Um, in keeping with the scriptures. It is hard to talk to people when Jesus makes so many hyperboles, and <laughs> That's a great way it, to it's it. it's hard to to as a layperson um, explain when Jesus is literal and means exactly like like for the communion mm-hmm. and that there's no question there. But in other parts of scripture, oh no, 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 you can't take that literal here. Mm. And when you're talking to people outside the church, it's, it's kind of hard. They, they get lost. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I, it is. I mean, I, I think that that's true when you look at the scriptures in terms of the different books, there's different genres of writing. And it's true even when you take different sermons or different expressions, and it's true, too, when you just even think about the differences and how one culture or language conceptualizes things and trying to translate that 2,000 years into the future in an entirely different language, entirely different, entirely different culture. So there's, there's always those, those difficulties and those challenges. Um, to be cliche and overly simplistic about it, the way you can tell is context. So you're looking at the scriptures, you're looking at the context and you're seeing i mean for example taking a millstone tying it around someone's neck somehow getting them and said millstone out into like like in a boat ostensibly out into the and right it just kind of biggers the imagination to the point where you go okay there's hyperbole there's exaggeration going on the exaggeration is there to demonstrate the seriousness of the point you would rather have this absurdly horrible thing happen to you than to be one who causes one of these little ones to fall away. So I think, that, yeah, I mean, again, at the risk of being cliche, the answer is, is always contextual. Why do you take the Lord's Supper literally? Because it's, as he says, his testament, it's a last will and testament, it's a solemn agreement he has at his disposal figurative language and he opts not to use that figurative language when you find later on New Testament documents being written they always serve that literal reading there's not a single one that lightens it, loosens it symbolizes it, metaphorizes it, rather in fact in the last of the gospels written, John at least as far as we know you have a heightening of it where Jesus uses this really graphic language, um, not soma," which is eat my body, but um, uh, what is it now? Sark's flesh and uh, to, uh, um to masticate my flesh. Mm-hmm. So you have a heightening of the literalism of the language in the development of the theology of the earliest church. So, in other words, context is always going to spell it out for you. I understand that that doesn't play well in kind of our little soundbite age, but we can leverage that too, because people people feign being dumb, and people feign misunderstanding with Scripture all the time, and we can learn those tricks and uh, do our own little, you know, games back to get them to see that they don't know as much as they maybe think they know. Okay, I was checking on something, but that was a really good question. Yeah, if you steal in certain countries, you lose your hand. I, don't, it's, I mean, that's a little. That strikes us. It <laughs> yeah. strikes us as a little draconian. But, the, but then again, sometimes our laws are so lax. What happens to you if you steal? Now, well, as long as you have the right skin color or running in a big enough mob, you're okay. <laughs> and you. you stop them. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So if you. Yeah. So if you try to uh, execute righteousness you're uh, in trouble, whereas if you try to execute wickedness, you're, if not left alone, or if not praised, left alone, I should say. Yeah. Yeah, okay, so back to the text and back to the task at hand. If your are oh, that was a terrible, un- unintended pun. If your hand causes you to sin, yes. cut it off. It is better for you to enter life. So it is the entering life. Which is just a fascinating expression to dissect and chew on a little bit. I won't because I don't want to be overly tedious. Well, maybe just a little. So with your hand cut off, you're entering life. It's interesting, when are you entering life? That's a that's an interesting question. Enter life crippled and with two hands go to hell. Now the contrast between life and hell probably puts this at least microcosmically eschatological like upon death of the individual. Be rather you enter death with one hand cut off, but it's a strange way of speaking because even then the whole body is cut off in in death. So there's more here than meets the eye, and a lot to chew on and think on. It's not a even though there is some hyperbole, it's not a section to go too quickly over. I think. And again, we can think in the back of our minds, too, if this is corporately the body of Christ, the church, we can always see how that uh, maybe fits or doesn't fit, what we like or don't like about that. It's always worth considering. Okay, Jesus talks about hell more than anyone else in all the Bible. And here he's going after it again. So Gehenna is the language used here for hell. And he calls it the unquenchable fire. So a place where fire consumes. All right, 45. And if your foot causes you, again, not to sin, but this scandalous, say, to fall away, to apostatize, cut it off, it is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye. I mean, and this also, doesn't this bespeak the hyperbole? How are you going to sin with one eye? It was just my right eye that caught glimpse lustfully, not my left. So, you know, you can tell the hyperbole, but the seriousness that's communicated through the hyperbole. So, If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God. So you have enter life, enter life, enter the kingdom of God. With one eye, then with two eyes be thrown into hell. So you have hell, unquenchable fire. Hell and hell where their worm does not die, and the fire is not quenched. Which, if you look over at your concordance in the middle of your page on verse 48, you'll see Isaiah 66, 24, and that's what Jesus is quoting. Um, Let's take a little field trip, put put a finger or a bookmark or something there so you don't lose your page and toward the end of Mark chapter 9. We'll just flip back to Isaiah 66 and look real closely, real quickly. And so what you're going to see if you're, If you look at Isaiah 66, and the ESV has it laid out this way, perhaps other versions the same, that at verse 15 you have the subheading, final judgment and glory of the Lord. So you have this picture of the Lord returning to the earth in judgment, and in judgment over all the nations. It's the typical warlike imagery um, the return of the king and the conquest of the king, the reclaiming of that which is his own, uh, that you find in the book of Revelation and in other such prophetic writings, then verse 22 would be a good place for us to pick up. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make, so Old Testament has in view the new heavens and the new earth. Old Testament has in view the resurrection, You know, contrary to what the History Channel and people who get all their theology from it will tell you. The Old Testament is filled with these things. So, for as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon, and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. That's the great ingathering of the faithful from the nations. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. And because Isaiah is a good 20th century Lutheran, he ends on the gospel. (laughs) (laughs) Or more provocatively, the gospel actually has within it the punishment of the wicked. However you'd like to be controversial, I'll leave that up to you. But back to the point, this is what Jesus is quoting here when he talks about the worm not dying. So you can tell that it's the, worm, the worms that consume the corpse not dying, and the, the fire. You can think of a battlefield where there's been all kinds of violence and violent use of fire all kinds of terrible things that men would invent to do with fire. Fiery arrows and pitch and flammables and that kind of thing. Yeah, please. We thought
1: that in the New Heavens and the New Earth we wouldn't see any evil or sin. in this
0: contradicts that? I don't know. I don't know. So I mean, one thing that's—I think that one thing that's definitively true is in the new heavens and the new earth, we'll know that those who rebelled against the Lord and rejected the Lord have been cast out, and that they're exactly where He said they would be. And, you know, I think that as Christians, that conflicts us. That conflicts us in the first place because we have a sinful nature and we don't see the way God sees, think the way God thinks, and there's a certain sense in which we're fearful for ourselves maybe more altruistically, we're fearful for those we love who might reject God and might find themselves there. And it's, it's unthinkable from a sinful, fallen human perspective of how we'd be okay with that. Um, how heaven could still be heaven, knowing that people I love are in hell, that kind of thing. So I think it's, it's those types of feelings, that kind of nexus of thought that causes us to struggle Already, depending upon what God grants, we can glimpse, though, how this is not the case and how rightly aligned with God, rightly aligned with His purposes, His good purposes, His goodness, His blessedness, um, we'll see things entirely differently. Indeed, we already kind of can. Uh, again, to one degree or another, depending upon how it's given. So, is this a literal, like, you know, you finish your banquet and you're. Three thousand six hundred ninety seventh year in the new heavens and new earth, and walk out back on the deck and look at the corpses of those rotting in hell. Is that that kind of literal? I don't think the scriptures do bind us to that kind of literal dogmatic statement. It remains literally and dogmatically true that uh, the enemies of God are defeated. And whereas now we might feel some feelings of being conflicted about that the time is coming when we won't. We'll be rejoicing that the enemies of our God and the enemies of his people are no longer a threat and no longer able to do the evil that they've done because they're vanquished. You see a similar rejoicing over the demise of God's enemies in the book of Revelation. So that's, I don't know that I've, answered your question as to whether or not you know, we should take this as literally true or kind of poetically true. E- either way, the, the core of what it's communicating is true, no doubt about it. And is this, is this, and they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me, for their worms shall not die, their flesh shall not be quenched, they shall be in abhorrence to the flesh, this a one-time occurrence, or is this a feature of the new heavens and the new earth? I'm, you know, again, I would be inclined to guess that it's a one-time occurrence. In view, this is the culmination. This is the close. Well, all the, well, all flesh, you know, 23 comes to worship before me. Those who have rebelled and rejected are cast away. And sort of in that climactic moment, these things are realized. But the idea that you know, we'd go out on the back deck and watch the suffering and torments of those in hell, I find that to be not really likely to be the case. Yeah, exactly. Exactly right. Okay, so what's Jesus' point then in quoting this? Well, his teaching is in continuity with the prophet Isaiah and with the scriptures, Jesus again being a solo scripture or theologian in his own right. But I think he's saying these things precisely so that we don't go there. <laughs> you know that's the that's the rhetorical point of what Jesus is saying. Um, why he describes hell as unquenchable fire, and he has this threefold expression of hell, unquenchable fire, hell, and hell where the worm doesn't die and the fire is not quenched. And then this threefold expression of life. You have. Uh, just straight up life in verse forty-four, life in forty-six, and then the kingdom of God in forty-seven. Okay, so I I'm, yeah, just to just to give one summary statement, I think that this whole section has to do with apostasy or apostatizing, and the stark warning against causing others to fall away from Christ or to falling away from Christ yourself. I think that that's a plain, simple, evident meaning and way of understanding Jesus. Yeah, please. In the study Bible, verses uh, verses 44 and 46 are not included. I, I wondered why that is. Mm. oh jumped over 43 is missing 44 and... it goes from 43 to 45 mm-hmm. and then from 45 to 47 mm, I didn't look at that in any detail Some, but sometimes that does happen when uh, you've got a, diff, a major difference in the manuscript tradition do you know? Yeah, Good. So the- oh get here give Vicar the mic so he can enlighten us on this
1: in the footnotes it's showing that uh, the missing verses are the same as forty-eight. That the worm phrase
0: is repeated. Three times. Have that, so then they just leave it out. Great, thank you. All right. Anything else on anything else here to four? We're, we're doing okay through verse forty-eight. Alright, 49 may be trickier still, uh, but tricky just because I think, I think it's easy enough to grasp the sense. It's just you kind of wrestle with the language. He says in 49, for everyone will be salted with fire. Okay, well not, not, not everyone is going to hell or experience the unquenchable fire. You know, that's kind of where we left off. That's a little bit what makes this tricky is the former reference, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. That's, not everyone will experience the unquenchable fire, obviously. But he's not done with the idea of fire. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness... How will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So what all is meant here? It's kind of hard to unravel, for sure. But the idea of salting is, again, when Jesus is in, especially when he's in such a scriptural mode, I mean, he's just quoted Isaiah. It's probably best to think of Leviticus and the salting of the sacrifices, the sacrifices which are then burned. So, to then, as Christians, realize that, no, you're not going to go unto unquenchable fire. That's God's judgment. But God will nonetheless salt you with fire. So think of, think of salt, right? And the priest would salt the sacrifice. And God may salt you with fire. So, I mean, without trying to be overly dramatic, it may feel like you're going through tiny bits of hell. I think that would be a way of connecting the unquenchable fire with the salting of fire. You may feel the coals of hell, as it were, in you in your life. But that's the extent of it. And that's for a purpose, that you are being made into a living sacrifice. That seems to be the way Paul uses salt and uses the concept of us being living sacrifices. And in this sense, you're conformed into the image of the one great sacrifice, our Lord Jesus. So it seems to be then indicative of the suffering we'll endure as Christians, but that that suffering will be for our good and will be unto the, you know, for the good of our neighbor and unto the glory of God. So I think that that's a... That's the best possible read, I think, of 49. Maybe there are other possibilities, but I don't find them quite as compelling. What makes this difficult, again, is not only the former referent, but now the latter referent. Because not the referent to fire, but the referent to salt. Jesus seems to pivot and do something he's done uh, many other times with salt. And this doesn't necessarily have to do with the previous line and with the idea of salting the sacrifice. So that it's you know, consumed unto God in a pleasing way. But salt here, he says, is good. You know, which leads many commentators, I think the Lutheran Study Bible might be similar. Yeah. Christians may be kept in the truth through the trials they endure. Fire purified, salt preserved. So the idea then being that salt is good, the idea that you're being salted with fire, salted in general, is good. It's for you and for your benefit. Then he goes on to say these familiar words, a theme that he seemed to preach more than once. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? And that seems to be a a semantic pivot, a drift into a different sense. Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. It's like the essence of, I mean, if you want to put semantic continuity, it's something like the sacrifice of Jesus. It's something like the essence of Jesus. And if you lose Jesus, the way salt loses its saltiness, what good's it for? Nothing. And if you lose Jesus, what good are you for? Nothing. So that ties back into kind of the falling away theme and the admonition to have salt in yourselves, have Christ in yourself, and thus be at peace with one another. Have Christ in yourself and thus have that saltiness, have that sacrificial nature within yourself, submitting yourself to God even when he salts you with fire, knowing it's not unto your condemnation, but unto your salvation. That's, um, that's my take. Any other thoughts? Any other ideas? Anything stand out to you that you'd like to discuss? Lots of people whine about how hard verse 49 is. Wine's the technical term for when theologians say, they always say these things like, I don't know, I just get tired of it. They say, they say these things like, among the verses in the New Testament, none is so difficult as But then there's like 20 of them. <laughs> so it kind of loses its uh, interest over time when you realize that there's, yeah, there's more than, more than a few difficult verses, this among them. Although I do, I just, I'm pretty thoroughly convinced that understanding this along the lines of the sacrificial use of salt. It's probably the best way to understand this. All right, so here's a paradox of faith then in summary. Maybe this will be my summary statement. Then we'll go on to that really easy teaching of Jesus on divorce. So, so you know, in summary, there's these two aspects of faith And they're not in contradiction, but we can experience them in some kind of paradox, I suppose. And that is, on the one hand, faith is the easiest thing in the world. And we're justified by grace through faith apart from works. And faith is a gift, and no works are required. And so, hey, like, what could be easier? Um, Salvation is free, of course, at the cost of Christ. He paid that cost, but he distributes it freely, etc. So that's it. But what is the experience of retaining that faith over and against our own sinful nature with all of its false belief and all of its doubts and all of its continual desires and sins? What is the experience of retaining that faith when the world is trying to pry it out of us with every uh, enticement on the one hand or persecution on the other? Uh, What is the experience of retaining that faith when the devil and all his uh, devious and diverse hordes are, you know, taking turns trying to mess with us and trying to mess that faith up. You know, the experience of faith very much fits like what Jesus, the kind of language that Jesus uses. You know. Hands being cut off and feet being cut off and eyes being plucked out and um, being saved by the skin of your teeth so to speak and uh, barely making it. (laughs) So You've got these two different teachings in the scriptures. On the one hand, it's absolutely free. On the, uh, it's absolutely certain. On the other hand, you have language in the scripture of endurance and of trial and of great struggle and of great sacrifice and of great cost. And the key is not to go one side or the other and reject the rest of the scriptures. <laughs> the key is to hold both and to just understand both and to understand that even the expression of of the difficulties that you will face in endurance um, are, are ultimately there for your comfort, so that you're not surprised by the fiery trial that you have to endure. God's not surprised by it. It's all going according to plan. It may not feel like it, but it's all going according to plan. It's all within God's control and good purposes, and he's working out all things for the good of those who love him, And it may well be that we don't have answers to many of the things that we suffer, many of the things we endure. But that's kind of one of the lessons of the book of Job, is we don't need the answers as much as we need the answerer. We need to have God and let him be God. For him we were made. There you go, exactly right. Exactly right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly right. Mm-hmm. hmm Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, and to follow Christ, it's so it's so amazing because Christ Himself will talk about you know salvation apart. You know, just your faith has saved you, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. yeah, and, and not meriting, not making up for, not anything. Just your faith has saved you, full stop. So you get that kind of statement from Jesus. But then you get the statement that you're mentioning, too, that um, whoever would follow me must take up his cross. And it's going to, uh, you know, and whoever loves his life will lose it. But forever who lo- whoever loses his life for my sake will gain it. And so there's this kind of paradox of, like, what does salvation cost you? In one sense, nothing. In another sense, everything. It's kind of one of the, the great mysteries of the pearl of great price. Remember that? And it's a, it's a much more modern interpretation, historically speaking, that the one who finds the, the treasure in the field or finds the pearl of great price and gives everything he has for it is Christ, giving everything he has for the treasure in the field or for the pearl of great price. But for a long time before that, for the vast majority of church history, it hasn't been read that way. It's been read that we as Christians are the man who finds the treasure and finds the pearl. We have to be willing to give up everything in order to attain that. So I think the fun of it is that they're both true. They're both right reads. They're they're both correctly understood, um, can be populated with proof texts that support them absolutely. Salvation is absolutely the free gift of God on the one hand. Paradoxically, on the other hand, retaining that free gift (laughs) may cost you absolutely everything. So there's there's the fullness of the biblical teaching. Jesus is obviously a serious theologian. It's not that he's without humor or without joy, but he's obviously a serious theologian. He's unafraid to talk about hell. He's unafraid to use the vibrant and poignant language. He's unafraid to just outright warn people. He's not afraid to um, tell people in, in no uncertain terms what their destination will be if they reject him. And so I think all of those things are things we can learn from our Lord too especially as you know it becomes increasingly obvious to us that winsomeness isn't going to win the day so to be straightforward with those in our lives and to not be to not eschew the kind of language and thinking that Jesus himself uses in our interactions with others probably a good thing to meditate on good thing to consider All right shall we go on yeah please
1: So I was just thinking about um, C.S. Lewis's *The Great Divorce*, and talking about suffering. And uh, this quote is kind of interesting. Um, this is what mortals misunderstand. They said they say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it, not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. And so, mm-hmm. and and he before that he talks about you know the the things that happen here for. People who are in hell, they will have thought it was always hell. Mm-hmm. But it just makes me think of, you know, everything is just so meaningful, right? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Anyway, that that's just made me talk about sufferings and that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It, it's an important thing for us to consider, and it's an important thing... I think it's really helpful, obviously, to deal with that on an individual level. It's another thing to think about it corporately. That's something I've only kind of begun to do myself. But to think about, we tend to be so individualistic. The whole body of Christ and the good of the whole body and why things are the way they are is often God's good purposes toward the whole. And so... In our blindness and sinfulness and self-centeredness, we have a real inability to see from that cosmic scope and scale. So I'm thankful for C.S. Lewis and other guys who sometimes prod that a little bit and get us to see that it is possible to conceive of such a perception, even here when we're so blinded and deluded as we are. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, please.
1: I was meditating on salt
0: and thinking about when Jesus said, you are the light of the world. Mm -hmm. salt of the earth yeah. and if we think of it as you say that don't lose Christ Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that we're the salt of the earth and that's the bottom line don't lose Christ yeah exactly he's the light that enlightens us if we why would we hide that Uh, he's the the salt that saltifies us (laughs) so if we lose yeah if we lose Christ we lose our Christiness what are we then we're fit to be trampled underfoot right yeah so I do, think, I do think that that teaching has Christ at the center and then has him declaring what we are and then him warning us not to be contrary to that nature and realize what's at stake. Mm-hmm. All right. So then on to chapter 10. And he left there and went to the re- region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, and of course, this is not a nice little test, like to see if he passes their theological exam even. They're ultimately trying to kill him with these tests. That's the point. In order to test him, they ask, is it lawful? So, you know, is it in keeping with God's word? That's really what is meant by, is it lawful? Is it in keeping with God's word? Is it, in fact, the testimony of the scriptures, the Old Testament, obviously, in view here, for a man to divorce his wife? Now, this is a, a tricky question. It's a tricky question. So, Jesus answered them, What did Moses command you? Which is a great way of responding. <laughs> Because if Jesus says, I mean, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He can say yes, and he's got to do a bunch of explaining. Or he can say no, and he's got to do a bunch of explaining. Instead, he says, what did Moses command you? It's a great answer. He makes them pick the side. They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart... He wrote you this commandment. Now, one thing that's absolutely fantastic, and I know it's an aside, but it's still, it's like the greatest aside ever, is look at how Jesus thinks about the scriptures. Who did Moses write to? Them present tense. This is really a unique way that Jesus sees the scriptures. Luther probably comes to mind next as one who sees the scriptures this way and i think all good preachers see the scriptures this way i aspire to seeing the scriptures this way and that is as a present tense word to people written to like so the old testament is not the history of the old testament as much as it's the history of the church and the ongoing reality of the church it's it's written present tense don't want to make too much of that um, or overread this one comment, but everything I said is true nonetheless. It is interesting to just pay attention to the grammar of Jesus here. Because of your hardness of heart, He wrote you this commandment. So Jesus acknowledges that Moses allows a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Now there's uh, rationale for why He does this and why God permits this. And, of course, the root isn't that God wants it this way. The root is your hardness of heart. Then he goes on to say, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And you'll notice that this isn't mutual. I mean, this is, again, an aside, but an important one in our day and age of confusion. It doesn't say that a man shall leave his father and mother, and that a daughter shall leave, or a woman shall leave her father and mother, and then the two shall. It doesn't say that at all. It says that a man shall leave his father and mother. The man leaving becomes his own household, and then incorporates a wife into his household. It may appear as a subtle distinction, but it's an all-important distinction. Never is it said that a a wife, or or a woman, or a daughter rather, leaves her father and mother, because in fact she's under her father's care and headship until she's handed over to a husband, then she's under his care and headship. Love it or hate it, I don't really care. That's what the Bible says. (laughs) I guess I I hope you love it. But yeah, that's the order of creation. You can see how far we've, we've come from that in our present day. It's not progress, it's regress. Okay, so that's an aside, but Jesus goes to what Moses also wrote prior to the hardness of heart he encountered amongst the Hebrew people. From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Now that's a far cry from, like, here's your certificate of divorce. right? What, therefore, God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, that's sufficient enough to silence the Pharisees, who if nothing else realize they're in over their heads. If nothing else realize that this is a theology that they're not going to be able to attack. So, does Moses permit divorce? Yes. Is this on account of God's good intentions or good actions in marriage. No. It's on account of man. It's a concession by God in his law on account of man's hardened heart. Sort of like building a fire line. Like, okay, would that there would be no fire, but since there's a fire and you started it, let's, cut it here so that sin can't simply abound and spread and create a forest fire, will make a concession that you can give your wife a certificate of divorce. But that's the nature of it. It's a concession. It's not in accordance with the will proper of God. All right, at verse 10, this episode continues. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Okay, so Jesus is pretty white and black about this. He takes us back to the foundation. And I think that that's the key. And while it's not spelled out here, I think that it is worthwhile noting some things. And that is that a full biblical theology will show that before the foundation of the world, God has in mind a marriage. And that his son, even without the fall, if you want, his son would receive humanity as his bride. In the fullness of time. Now we fell away from that, obviously, and that required the bridegroom to be to lay down his life for us and win us back that we could be his bride. But that's the overarching story of creation, why God creates man. The Father creates man as a gift unto his Son, and his Son receives that gift as receiving a wife. So this is, this is taught to us in the scriptures. Why then are there husbands and wives? Why do the two become one flesh? Why does that one flesh beget children? Because of Christ and his church. Because the great overarching intent of God, love story of God, bears itself out in the crown of that creation in husband and wife. That's the picture. So that's the way it is, and that's the why, reason why Jesus goes back to the origin of creation. He is the bridegroom, and even if only existentially, we need to understand how He, our bridegroom, views divorce. So while we may be, feel convicted in one way, shape, or form on account of these statements, or see other people in our lives convicted on account of these statements, and that, yeah, that's what. That's what the law does. It reveals our unrighteousness. What we should also meditate on, though, is the faithfulness of Christ, the bridegroom, and what his attitude is towards marriage is absolutely no divorce. Now that's profoundly comforting. Will Christ divorce you on account of your sins? And then you've got this, one of the overarching motifs of the Old Testament is Yahweh marrying his people, and his people are unfaithful, and finally he gives them a certificate of divorce because they demand it by their infidelity. And he likens uh, them going after other gods to having other lovers. And, of course, you have this embodied in a prophet like Hosea with his prostitute wife that he has to take, and then she continues to prostitute herself, and he has to take her back. And this is God and his people. And he you know, gives certificate of divorce, fine, you can have your way, but then relents and receives her back again. And so it's a frustrating story. It's a romance ruined, but it's ruined one-sidedly on the part of humanity. God remains faithful. God remains a true bridegroom. And I love that line out of the hymn. Uh, and the line goes, Love to the loveless shown that they might lovely be. And that's Titus 3, that he is sanctifying us, purifying us. Even though we've been the harlot bride, that in the end it will not be so. We'll be without spot or wrinkle or any such stain standing before him. And the Father's good purposes from before the foundation of the world will be met. And will be met on account of, christ's refusal to divorce us that's the key and that's what underlies all of jesus teaching and his strictness on divorce is he won't have it (laughs) because he's the bridegroom and he won't be faithless to us all right let me pause there and see if uh yeah please there's a hand
1: Um, so is this divorce similar to the same, like, divorce that Joseph wanted, like, from Mary? Or is it different? Like, uh, like, if he would have divorced Mary, would he have, like, been condemned, I guess, of this same thing? Or, uh... I guess, is, is it
0: different? Yeah, it is different, even on in those levels. So they hadn't consummated the marriage yet. They were still in the betrothal. So there's, it's different there, and it wouldn't fall under that condemnation there either because the two hadn't become one flesh in the consummation. That's one difference. Um, another difference is, while Jesus doesn't say it here, elsewhere, in similar parallel statements, he does say, with the exception of sexual immorality, which is really what Joseph was Thinking when it came to letting Mary go is that she had fornicated and he did not want to see her stoned to death or shunned. And so he determined in his heart, because he was a righteous man, which don't you love that? Because righteousness is more than just, hey, you got to do these Ten Commandments. Righteousness is like goodness and mercy and all those things too. So because he was a righteous, a just man, he wanted to divorce her quietly. She fornicated, but I don't want her to reap any more repercussions that she's going to have to reap. So that's what he was thinking, right? And then the angel comes in the middle of the night and is like, what are you thinking? You know, she's, the, she's pregnant with God's son and it's going to be fine. And all, and all that's good, except for um, the fact that Joseph and Mary bear that shame. Because anybody who doesn't believe their story thinks she's an adulteress and he's a cuckold and a fool. So there's a sense in which the Holy Family, as it were, bears the shame of all of that. And it's a a wonderful embodiment and foreshadowing of their beloved son, you know, son of Mary by God, of course, and Joseph the stepfather, but of their son's innocence bearing the shame of the world and their own innocence bearing shame just in his conception and bringing him forth. Um, there's, uh, there's decent reason to believe. I mean, there's a lot of different takes on this, but why would there be no room in the inn? <laughs> why would there be no room in the houses of the, the people in the city of David where Joseph is practically part of the royal, I mean he is part of the royal line, he's practically royalty, he's practically a celebrity, he's come back home and suddenly there's no room for anyone? Uh, because there's a child out of wedlock, so maybe they think he did it, maybe they think she did it, and he's a fool, or or he's just in his old age winking at perversity. Who knows what? But yeah, so those are, I mean, those are possibilities. I'm not trying to lay that in the sand it's like, write this down. Thus saith the Lord. But those are possibilities. What's almost certainly the case is they bear the shame. When Jesus is insulted, uh, he's insulted as being a bastard, as being a child outside of wedlock. And that's, that's frequently cited against him. Yeah. A, a, chi, a product of fornication. That's how they view it. So that was one of their denunciations. We don't have to listen to a thing you say. You're filthy and dirty. You're a child of fornication. That was one of the most common slurs and dismissals of our Lord. So it makes shine all the more brightly Elizabeth, who knows the truth and believes the truth and... Uh, Oh, yeah, yeah, the old, old man and old woman at the temple who believe. Oh. Okay, well, that's enough for today. The Lord be with you.